And if you would please take out your copies of God's Word with me this morning and turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. We will actually be finishing this chapter today as we look at the trial of Jesus. Luke 22, and we'll be starting in verse 63. Listen carefully, because this is God's word to you today. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they, and they said many other things against him blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chiefs, priests, and and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, The Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of power, at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said to him, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to God in prayer and ask his blessing on our message this morning. Oh, Jesus, I pray that as we look at this text and are reminded of what Jesus went through for us, that our hearts would be changed, that our minds would be transformed, and that we would see you in a new and refreshed way. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hearing the phrase, the trial of Jesus, sounds rather strange. When we think about a trial, we think about someone doing something wrong and needing to be judged for it. But Jesus is the most innocent person that's ever walked the earth. He is innocence himself. He has never sinned in any way, in thought, word, or deed. He has preached, blessed are the poor has healed entire cities, and has preached the gospel of the kingdom of God. And yet for this, he is on trial. It is the ultimate injustice that has ever happened on earth. So it raises the question, how has this happened? Why has this happened? And what does it mean for us today? We're going to be looking at the answer to all of those questions as we look at our two points that you can see in the outline that's been tucked into your bulletin. The first is that Jesus endured abuse for you. Jesus endured abuse for you. And then secondly, that Jesus is the Son of God no matter what. So we'll take a look at those passages today. So... We pick up in verse 63. We have just left the denial of Peter. 
Here, Peter has been sitting in the courtyard and has faced pointed questions from people saying, are you a disciple of Jesus? And this was too much for Peter. And he denies Christ three times and leaves. Meanwhile, while he is facing a trial of his own, here we zoom in and see what's happening to Jesus. Very different thing that he is facing. Now, if you read the other Gospels, it can be a little confusing as to what the timeline is. How is all of this fitting together? Here in, for example, Matthew kind of inter- uh, interweaves these two things, where we'll see Jesus mocked first and then Peter's denying, and other Gospels, they kind of summarize everything together. It's a little difficult to see how this is happening. This is not because the disciples are getting something wrong or that, that they should have checked notes first is they're all trying to make a particular point. Here, I think with Luke, I think he's trying to contrast Peter's reaction to Jesus' reaction. Peter folds up like a cheap lawn chair, but Jesus holds steady under persecution. And I think that's the contrast he's trying to draw. Other gospel writers are making different points, but I think if we can, with the help of scholars, able to pull together what's happening here. Jesus has been arrested at night, and he's been brought to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. And they have a sort of informal trial to establish facts. But Caiaphas on his own, or maybe with a few other stragglers that were a part of the mob, were not able to render a verdict to Jesus that would be in any way authoritative. In different Jewish texts, there has been some evidence that you wouldn't be able to issue a penalty of capital punishment at night. It would be something that you would have to do during the day when everyone was fresh and clear-minded, supposedly. So here, when we, this is what we're likely seeing here in verse 63 and through 65 is what is happening at night. And then when we get to verse 66, when day comes, the whole assembly is officially gathered together. The elders of the people, the chief priests, the authorities of the day are going to gather together to have a review of facts and to and to render a judgment. Of course, this is, that would seem to give an air of a fair trial, but this is anything but fair. They've all made their decisions beforehand, and they're just trying to find a way to get Jesus executed. Now, we don't see this in this passage. Luke tends to kind of shorten up his accounts. <clears throat> but in other gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, they make reference of them bringing in false witnesses. People who were trying to lie to get Jesus in trouble. You need at least two or three witnesses in Jewish law to have a testimony established. So they try to bring in two or three witnesses. But all the witnesses keep contradicting each other. And there's no way that they can establish an outside witness to condemn Jesus. So they're going to need Jesus' help in his own condemnation. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Here we're going to look at verse 63, and we'll see what's happening with Jesus. So it says, the men who were holding Jesus in custody, these were probably the temple guards, soldiers that would have helped keep order there at the temple. And they've got Jesus here. And soldiers, it's, it's night, they're bored, and they decide to have some fun at Jesus' expense and try to beat Jesus. So this is what they do. They are mocking him. They're blindfolding him, striking him, and trying to get him to say 
Who who hits you? Making fun of Jesus' prophetic abilities. Now, why is Jesus going through all of this? Is it because Jesus lacks the power to get out from this scenario? Not at all. In fact, this is something that if you blink, you might miss. But turn to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. An almost humorous account of Jesus' power. This is John's description of Jesus being arrested. We pick up in John chapter 18, starts in verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, that's the mob that's coming out to arrest him, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed them, was standing with him. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Here, at a word from God, the mob loses their ability to stand and falls back onto the ground. So here, with Jesus being slapped and pushed around, it's not because Jesus lacks the power to get out of that. In a single word, all of them could fall. In another account, He says that he could call 10,000 angels to his side if he so chose. So this isn't because Jesus got wrapped up in something that he couldn't get out of. This is something that Jesus is willingly doing. But what's happening here? Where is the real offense of what they're doing? It's not just the physical pain that one feels from getting slapped in the face while being blindfolded. That's unpleasant for sure. But I think what can be missed here is the real offense that's going on. Look here in this verse 65. And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. The word that's translated blaspheming there can mean insult. But in many cases in which it's used, it is talking about the sin of blasphemy. Speaking ill or cursing God. And I think the ESV translators get this correct. When instead of saying they saying many things insulted him, it's blaspheming him. This calls to our mind of who it is that they're pushing around. This isn't just some Jewish teacher. This is God in the flesh. This is the son of God that's being abused in this moment. And what's happening, and I think where the chief offense and abuse is coming from, is not the physical act of slapping, but I think it's the sin that they do as they're participating in this. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 6 really fast. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. It says, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. This is not an exhaustive list, but here are things that the writer of Proverbs pulls out. Seven things that are an abomination to God. Haughty eyes, pride, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, 
a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who who sows discord among brothers. How many of those can you spot in this passage? You can spot all of them, can't you? We all have things that we hate, things that we don't like. And often for for us, we have a very small amount of tolerance we have for those things that we hate. But look at what Jesus is doing. Yes, there is the physical suffering he's going through. That we can relate to. We know what it feels like to be slapped. But there is a deep offense that is occurring in all these. All of these people are doing all of these sins that disgust God to his core. But this is what Jesus is going through. Sin is very, very offensive to God. And whenever we sin, we should place ourselves in the role of these guards. There is something to learn about this passage about imitating Jesus, staying solid and committed to God in the face of persecution. That's a good lesson that we should learn, something we can draw from it. But I think more often than not, we can relate to those soldiers instead. Because what our sin does is blaspheme God. It's making light of who he is. These soldiers are pushing around the Lord of glory as if they were abusing some wild animal that someone was happy to get rid of. And when we say, when we sin, we're telling God, you don't matter. Can blindfold you, slap you across the face. I know better. That's our sin. It's offensive to God. We can do this when we sin or when we feel safe to sin by cloaking it in religious language. Say, like, well, God can forgive me of this, so I'll do this and then we'll move on. That's just as much of a slap as well. Taking sin lightly is to take our Savior lightly. That's why Jesus is enduring all of this. It's because we do this too. We sin. They sin. They need forgiveness. And the way that they have forgiveness is by Jesus suffering and dying for this sin. But it's amazing how he does that. It's not just enduring the cross. It's not just enduring the wrath of God. But scripture also points out that Jesus is made to be sin. The very thing that he hates, he has to be clothed in. The best illustration that I can come up with is Jesus is entering the sewer system of our sin to pull us out and is going to be covered in it himself. The very thing that is so offensive to him. So when he is going to the cross, all of our sin is taken off of us and put onto him as if he did it. So now, not only is he having to endure this blasphemy, but now it's going to make it seem like he's the one who did the blasphemy. He has to endure sin, take the punishment for it, and have it patient to his own record. It's as offensive as it gets. Imagine having to be blamed for the thing that you hate the most. 
This is what Jesus endures. Scripture doesn't say whether or not these guards later came to faith in Christ. But if they did, this record of them beating the Lord of glory, committing the ultimate injustice, Jesus goes to the cross so he can point to them and say, they're innocent. I'm the guilty one. Punish me instead. Can you all see the beauty of that? What an incredible God we serve. Who's willing to get so involved in our lives, taking off the sewer-stained clothes of our sin, putting them on himself and giving us his perfectly clean robes of righteousness, cleaning us up and taking it on. He is encountering the only thing that he hates in the universe, and that is our sin. Everything else he created is good. He likes everything else that's in creation. It's that one thing. And it's that one thing he covers himself in in order to then take the punishment for it, then enduring the wrath of God on top of all of that to make this possible. Jesus endured abuse for you, from you, from me. All of that sin placed on him in those verses. Also that we could go free. Our death sentence can be commuted. We can be declared innocent. But this seems too good to be true, doesn't it? We're very used to a justice system that can always be appealed. In fact, we've seen that happen just this past Friday, for those of you that might have noticed it in the news. One of the Boston Marathon bombers from 2013. His case has gone back and forth through different courts as it's gone its way up. The initial court, he was given the death penalty, but then was appealed to a federal court above that, in which it was then saying, well, no, we're not going to do death penalty. We're just going to do life in prison instead. Well, now it's been heard by the U.S. Supreme Court. The Supreme Court said, no, we are going to do the death penalty. But now there is a legal concern about that because the administration that's current has put a moratorium on death penalty. So maybe it won't happen after all, even though the Supreme Court has spoken. It's gone back and forth and back and forth, and no one really knows what his fate is going to be. But that's not the case with God. There is no court to appeal to when God has made a decision. He is authority itself. All of it comes from him. Which what makes this statement here in this next passage so crucial? Who is it that is taking on all of this? Who is it that's taking the punishment? That's what we're going to see in our second point. That Jesus is the Son of God, no matter what. This is how we can be assured that this beautiful promise, that all of our sins can be taken away, is confirmed over here. If we don't have this passage, we don't have hope that our sins can be forgiven. So let's find out why. 
So verse 66, it's the next day. Peter has walked out into the night, weeping over his sin. The rooster has crowed. Morning has dawned. The assembly has gathered together. And they ask him, are you the Christ? Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, the promised one that was to come to set all these things right. And then it looks like Jesus dodges their question. But as we've seen many times, Jesus doesn't dodge a question. He just answers the question you should have asked him. And here, what he is saying, he doesn't really answer this question about the Messiah. And one commentator brought out a possible reason why. Is when the Jews were asking in this Sanhedrin council, this gathering of religious and political authorities, when they were asking Jesus, are you the Messiah, they had a very different idea of what the Messiah was than Jesus had. So for Jesus to answer yes would have caused quite a confusion, actually, and wouldn't have really communicated the truth. What these people were looking for in a Messiah was the political figure to kick out the Romans. That's what they were asking him. Are you that guy? And Jesus would have to say, no, actually, that's not who I am. I am the Messiah. It's far, far more than a political victory in one country. I am a king setting up a heavenly kingdom. But these guys can't wrap their heads around that. So there's no reason to say it that way. So then Jesus goes on to make this really bold statement. He tells them that even if he told them what it was, that they would not believe. Because that's already been demonstrated before in our interactions with the Pharisees. When they've wanted to question him about his authority, they didn't believe him when he said it then. So it's not going to make any difference now. So he goes on here in verse 69. says, but from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Now that's big, big statement. Here, the Son of Man is a title, was Jesus' favorite title for himself. He refers to himself many times, all through the Gospels, by that title. And as we've covered many times here, it's a reference to Daniel 7. The Son of Man is a figure who is going to rise and have all the kingdoms of the world given to him. Something that only someone who is divine could have. So when Jesus is saying this, the rest of the Jewish court picks up on what he's saying. It might sound a little confusing to us who are not immersed in this culture, but they knew what, they were, what he was saying, and that's what they get to. Are you the Son of God then? This is the real question. You're claiming something for yourself. As we saw in the Apostles' Creed, sitting at the right hand of God, a place of incredible authority. As one commentator had put it, that the defendant is claiming to be the judge. So this would be a great time if Jesus was not claiming divinity for himself. When they were to say, are you the son of God then? If he wasn't trying to say that, this would be a wonderful opportunity to say no. If Jesus has somehow been horrendously misunderstood all of this ministry... Now's the time to correct it. But how does he do it? How does he answer this question? Verse 70. So they all said, are you the son of God then? And he, as Jesus, said to them, you say that I am. 
Now, this phrase has been dissected, I can't tell you how many ways in the commentaries. What is Jesus trying to say here? One has said, well, uh, one commentator takes a very uh, positive and definitive saying of Jesus basically responding, yep, you said it, I'm the son of God. Others have said, well, you say that I am, but you don't really believe that. Whether or how exactly Jesus was responding to this, it's quite clear what he's saying. Because he is not denying that he's the son of God. And it's pointed out, this is in fact what you are saying. Can they wrap their heads around what they've just said? No. But they understand it. Because look what it says in verse 71. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Now, again, in the more expanded uh, accounts of this story and the other Gospels, they've been trying to pin Jesus down for blasphemy. They tried to get these other witnesses to come in and support that, but as we've already covered, they could not. So when they get it here, they're saying, this is enough of a statement where he is claiming to be God. We've got him now. And in the, again, the other accounts, the Authorities react as would be typical in that culture to blasphemy. They tore their clothes and put on this front, at least for them in this case, of offense for what Jesus has done. So they say, he's claimed to be the son of God. We've got him. Now, as we'll explore and as other commentators have pointed out, and as we'll look at next time, this is as far as the Jewish court can go. In their laws, they've got him pinned for blasphemy but they can't kill him. Only the Roman state has the power to do that. So as we'll see next time, they need to get Pilate involved. They need to figure out a way that they can convince Pilate to kill Jesus. But here, his fate is sealed, and he's done it with his own words. Jesus has to help his enemies execute him because there was no other way to condemn him. So what can we learn from this section? Well, we can learn that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God, even though these religious leaders don't affirm that. There have been lots of smart people throughout history that have denied that Jesus is God. Lots of people even claiming some sort of religious authority, claiming to do so. But that doesn't change that Jesus is the Son of God. Even when he's facing execution, doesn't change that. Nothing changes the fact that there is hope because Jesus is always the Son of God. I was listening to a podcast just yesterday about a German theologian whose name was Bonhoeffer. For those of you that don't know, he was a German theologian who was also a spy trying to undermine the reign of Hitler. And on one April morning, by Hitler's own orders, He was hanged and killed for his attempt to overthrow the Third Reich. And in a letter, one of the last that he wrote, when he was given this terrible news, the plot to overthrow Hitler had failed, and his own death was going to be imminent for that, he said, Christ is alive, so I have hope. That's the gospel. 
Christ is the Son of God, and he is alive. So you have hope. No matter what is personally happening in your life or whatever is happening over the course of the world, Jesus is alive and has hope. And he is now, as he said in verse 69, that he is at the right hand of God and will judge the world. Now, at the one level, that's rather scary. If you are not in Christ, if you have not repented and put your trust in Jesus, then you have a really big problem. In that, if you have sinned, you have offended the very person who is going to judge you. Can you imagine being on your way to court and you punch somebody in the face because you're having a bad day because you're going to court and then you find out the person that you punched is going to be presiding over your assault case? That feels rather hopeless. The person knows exactly what happened because he was the victim of your crime and he gets to be the one to decide how you're punished. And if you're outside of Christ, that is exactly what you're facing. The one that you have offended is, in fact, your judge. And unless you have repented and put your trust in Christ, there is no hope for you. Because he is alive. You can't defeat him. You can't undermine him. You can't appeal him. He is your judge. But there's also good news, too. In that if you are in Christ... If you have repented, put your trust in him and him alone. Then the one who is presiding over your case is the one who walked into the sewer to get you out. The one who loves you so much. The one who has taken all of your sin and all of his ugliness and offense and put it on himself. Burned it away under the wrath of God. And gives you his perfect righteousness then that's your judge, the judge who loves you, even though you've offended him. He's forgiven you. He's brought you over to his house several times for dinner. He's adopted you into his family to be an heir of his tremendous inheritance. That's your judge if you're in Christ. That's the hope that we bring out of this passage. That's our takeaway. This incredible gift of the gospel has been bought for you at great cost. We see just a portion of it here. It's another chapter worth that Jesus is going to go through. We're only scratching the surface thus far. He's gone through all of this, all of this abuse to bring you to heaven. Now, this has some implications for your life. If you, like me, tend to ruminate over past sins and feel like you can't forgive yourself because of something that you've done or continue to feel like that this has something to say in your life, this should be a tremendous passage of encouragement to you. If you can't forgive yourself, that's actually a statement of tremendous arrogance. Because if God has forgiven you, that's the highest court in the land. For you to claim, I can't forgive myself, is to claim that your sense of justice is higher than God's. If God has forgiven you, you are forgiven. That sin is gone. Completely 
because God said it was. This is not an occasion to then say, oh, great, so now I can go out and sin as much as I want, right? Rack up a charge on a credit card I don't have to pay? No. That's not what we're saying here. That's not someone who has grasped the offense that we've created. When we have been completely forgiven in that moment that we trust in Christ, we don't have to look back anymore. Yes, if there's debts that we owe to society, if there are people that we need to make it right with as much as possible, by all means, do that. But you don't have to feel doomed by this sin anymore. That's part of the past now. God has forgiven that. And you can rest in this grace that you are forgiven. Purchased at tremendous cost. God knows what you did. And he's forgiven you. You don't have to torture yourself with that anymore. We also, in our last implication for this, is that this is good news to the rest of the world. Other people can find forgiveness in Christ. No matter what they've done, you can offer to them an actual hope. It's amazing the amount of suffering a guilty conscience can bring. You can have everything in the world, but if you know that you have done something wrong, there is no enjoying any of it. Christ brings forgiveness, real forgiveness, not granted by some human court, but granted by the ultimate court, granted by the Son of God who has endured your sin, paid the penalty for that sin, and taken it away so that you can be free. This is the promise that that passage holds, and I hope it sinks into your heart so deeply that you can't help but tell others about it. Let's pray. Oh, Lord in heaven, you have come down so far to be abused by your own creation. You know what it's like to have that happen. And I ask that you would forgive us for our contributions to that. It was our sin is why you had to come down and go through that. And it's our sin that continues to offend. But I thank you for the forgiveness that you've given to us. And I pray that there wouldn't be anyone within the sound of my voice that hasn't come to you looking for that forgiveness and that they would find it in you and find that freedom that you offer to them in your gospel. Lord, I ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.